Welcome to Frontlines, a weekly podcast produced by Legion Magazine, Canada's leading military history publication. Join us for stories and commentary on Canada's rich military past and present. I'm Stephen J. Thorne, and today we look at Canadians who fought for the Americans in Vietnam. Rob Purvis was 20 years old when he, Butch, Larry, and Billy, school buddies from Winnipeg, crossed the border and joined the United States Army in Fargo, North Dakota. It was 1968. They needed work, and they yearned for adventure. They got work all right, and more adventure than they had bargained for. They all wanted to go to Vietnam, and they all did. I'll die now right here fighting you. Are you my enemy. My enemy is the white people, not Vietnam, or Chinese, or Japanese. You my opposer when I'm on freedom. You my opposer when I'm on justice. You my opposer when I'm on equality. You stop the fighting. We are there only at the invitation of the four fighting, ex-fighting partners. How and why did America get involved in Vietnam in the first place? How has this administration changed the policy of the previous administration? What is really Vietnam is also the scene the of a powerful aggression what choices that is spurred by an the appetite for conflict. What are the prospects How do you ask a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? Larry Collins, 22, would die there. Purvis and the others would eventually return home changed men to an indifferent Canadian public that for the most part didn't know and didn't care where they had been or what they had done. The rest of their days would be spent in obscurity, waging simmering, sometimes boiling battles to gain small, simple acknowledgments of the contributions they and other Canadians had made to combat the spread of communism. We were just young and very naive kids when we signed up, recalled Purvis, now in his 70s. We watched the war every night on the 6 o'clock news. We had just graduated from high school, and we were looking around for something to do. There were no careers or jobs that were meaningful, he said. We figured we would join the Army. They were among thousands of Canadian citizens who served with U.S. forces in Vietnam. Some 30,000 Americans came north to Canada to avoid the draft, it is generally acknowledged, but estimates of the number of Canadians who went the other way to join the war range from 6,000 to 20,000. Nobody really knows how many Canadians served with U.S. forces in Vietnam, and it is impossible to track, said Michael Carroll, an associate professor of history at McEwen University in Edmonton, but he leans toward the latter figure, 20,000. Some lived in the U.S., held dual citizenship or green cards, and were drafted. Many crossed the border to enlist in northern American cities, including Seattle, Detroit, Bangor, Maine, and Plattsburgh, New York. Those cities were listed on their papers with no mention of the fact that they were Canadians, said Carroll. Purvis said, We just crossed the border and blended in with the American forces. When it was over, we were discharged and we were gone. Some, including a few Eastern European immigrants, joined out of a fervent desire to resist communism. Some Quebecois and Acadians simply wanted to learn English. Some needed the work or sought adventure, 
like Purvis and his pals. A significant number of First Nations men joined up, particularly from Quebec. Still others wanted to serve but either didn't make the grade in Canada or were turned away due to federal austerity measures. My plan was to join the Canadian Army after I got out of school in 1962, said Ron Parks, another Winnipegger who enlisted with the U.S. Army at 19 in Fargo, North Dakota, after serving with the militia during his high school years. It was 1962. The Cuban Missile Crisis was on the front of newspapers around the world. Vietnam was still widely viewed as just an American advisory mission. Parks and some friends had gone to a Canadian Forces recruiting office in downtown Winnipeg soon after graduation. But Prime Minister John Diefenbaker had frozen the defense budget and nobody could get in until somebody got out. We were told there was a six-month to one-year waiting list to get in, said Parks. Being the age we were, we didn't want to wait six months to get our military career started. So one of us had the idea of going down and seeing if the U.S. Army would take us. Our idea was that serving in the U.S. military would be the same as serving in the Canadian military, that we had the same values, we were allies and all the rest of it. Parks said the recruiting center in Fargo told them, yes, we would be happy to have you boys. We had no idea what we were getting into, he said. Parks became a paratrooper with the 101st Airborne Division and served a tour in Vietnam as an artilleryman. He went over in the spring of 1965 aboard a Second World War-era troop transport. The bunks were stacked four high, and the trip took 20 days. On his third night in country, he and his mates came under heavy machine gun fire. The tracers were flying everywhere. I realized right then and there, he said, that I had gotten myself into something pretty serious. By September, they had been dropped in the middle of three battalions of Viet Cong for what was the biggest battle of the war up to that point. Thirteen paratroopers were killed and 33 wounded over three days. Park's year-long tour concluded his three-year enlistment, and he went home. Others did not. The Canadian Vietnam Veterans Association, the CVVA, has documented 143 Canadians killed in action with U.S. forces in Vietnam. Seven, including Marine Lance Corporal Jonathan Peter Kometic, were declared missing in action. Kometic was from St. Catharines, Ontario, but his service record lists his home city of a record as Niagara Falls, New York. He was killed in an ambush during a long-range reconnaissance patrol 40 kilometers southeast of Da Nang on November 14, 1967. After his death, the Marines found his mother, Vera Baranowski, in Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario. The patrol was operating in very rugged terrain, characterized by thick growth of 30-foot trees and 6- to 7-foot underbrush, the Marine Corps headquarters in San Francisco wrote to Baranowski. The patrol was 10 miles from the nearest friendly force, and the only way to get in or out of the area is by helicopter. Attempts were made to get a helicopter to evacuate their son's body, they said. However, monsoon season weather was such that the helicopter could not make the evacuation. Marines carried Kometic's body for two kilometers through thick jungle toward a designated helicopter landing zone. They came under fire again 
before they could reach it. The Marines carrying her son had to place him down and seek cover, said the Corps. Repeated attempts were made to get your son's body back, but each time the effort was repulsed. One member of the patrol was wounded in the last attempt. A four-day search began a week later. It came up empty. Kometic's remains were never found. He is one of at least two Canadians serving with U.S. forces still missing in Vietnam. He was 20 years old. Many of the Canadians who joined the American war in Vietnam, like Parks and Kometic, did so before casualties began to mount and the anti-war movement gained momentum in the late 1960s and early 70s. The United States has got some perverse sense of pride that they would rather go on massacring people rather than admit the colossal blunder they made in Vietnam. And to me, this is insanity, and <laughs> I would do the same thing again. I have you know, no doubts about that, although I would like to live in the United States. I'm glad to be gone. I have no desire to return. I would like to see my family, you know, and I would like to be able to return. Well, but I, I, you know, there's, there's no desire for me to, on my part, to go back and rejoin American society. Technically, they were stretching Canadian law. The Foreign Enlistment Act of 1937 prohibited Canadians from enlisting in the armies of other nations, but only if they were at war with any friendly foreign state. As a communist nation, North Vietnam was neither friend nor exactly foe. Since 1954, Canada had an official role in independent efforts to arbitrate a peace between the two Vietnams, and this would continue until after the war's end. Canada, as a member of the International Control Commission, was not supposed to compromise its impartiality, wrote Fred Gaffin in his 1990 book, Unknown Warriors, Canadians in the Vietnam War. Yet for all intents and purposes, Canada looked the other way when it came to volunteers heading south of the 49th parallel. The External Affairs and Justice Departments examined the issue and refused to prosecute anyone, Gaffin wrote. They considered it very questionable that a Canadian could be successfully prosecuted under the circumstances of the day. The act was originally written to prevent Canadians from fighting in the Spanish Civil War. It was never particularly effective, and to the best of my knowledge, nobody has ever been convicted under the legislation, said historian Carroll. Modern-day cases of terror tourism or Canadians fighting on behalf of ISIS or other terrorist organizations are subject to anti-terrorism legislation. In any case, like Parks and his crew, Purvis and his buddies were welcome with open arms. In fact, by the time they enlisted in 1968, the U.S. military had taken whatever steps it could to accommodate volunteers from Canada. Though it couldn't actively recruit in Canada, it did expand recruitment offices in towns and cities close to the border. Along the Quebec boundary, some American recruiting stations even put up signs that read, Bienvenue Canadien. Gaffin, a former senior historian at the Canadian War Museum, describes how recruiters would write letters of acceptability for American military service. They would allow Canadian volunteers to then receive residency visas from what was then known as the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service. Those would allow them, in turn, to be inducted into the military. They were happy to have us, said Purvis, who ended up in the Special Forces. 
He served two years in the Panama jungle as part of clandestine U.S. operations spanning Central and South America. He was the last of the four friends to make the trip overseas, requesting a transfer to Vietnam after Collins died on May 1, 1969. I wanted to go see what was going on, he said, what he got killed for. Purvis came to know only too well what it was all about and the kind of conditions and circumstances that led to his friend's death, along with many others like him. He spent a year in what Parks called a 360-degree war, virtually all of it with U.S. volunteers in long-range reconnaissance. As a recon soldier in a ranger company, he worked with four-man teams, living and fighting in the jungle, without electricity or running water, sleeping when he could beneath the high green canopy. Purvis endured torrential rains, crushing humidity, and blistering heat. He was under constant threat from bugs, snakes, and a relentless enemy that was, Panama notwithstanding, far better adapted to the environs than a Canadian prairie boy and his American comrades. He saw many friends killed and wounded. There were no civilians, he said, anything that moved or crawled was enemy. When his tour was up, he took a 24-hour flight stateside. He left the army on arrival. Within 48 hours of leaving Vietnam, he was on the street in Winnipeg. No one knew what he had been through. He could barely process it himself. I was sort of invisible when I came back, he said. Nobody knew anything except my family and friends. It was really a culture shock. It's hard to describe. Staying in the U.S. Army, much less re-upping for another combat tour, was out of the question. He was bitter. Too many things happened in Vietnam, a lot of bad experiences, he said. The politics, the reasons some people got killed, and some of the stuff we did. I thought, I don't want any more of this, so I got out. Post-traumatic stress disorder hadn't been defined in 1970, but Purvis has no doubt he's had it. I think everybody who went through that had some of it, he said. Some of it still bothers me. You don't go through an experience like that and just forget about it or walk away from it without it affecting you in some way. Purvis went back to school and got his Bachelor of Arts on the GI Bill, a U.S. program that provides educational benefits to service members, veterans, and their families. He found criminology wasn't for him, however. He went on to work in construction building roads, pipelines, high-rises, houses and bridges from the Arctic to Los Angeles. I couldn't sit at a desk, he said. Many Canadian veterans of Vietnam stayed in America. Regardless of where they ended up, all who served were eligible for the same benefits as American veterans, including housing, but they weren't encouraged to seek them, and many never did. The Canadian government offered nothing and repeatedly rejected requests to erect a memorial to the fallen. American Vietnam veterans in Detroit held a seminal Welcome Home Canadian Veterans event in Michigan in 1989. The Americans launched a fundraising drive and helped finance a wall in Windsor, Ontario, memorializing Canadians killed in Vietnam. The Canadian Veterans Association has a traveling wall it takes to veterans' events around the continent. Canadian names also appear on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., although it bears no hometowns. 
American veterans of Vietnam endured years of rejection and a lack of support. The anti-war sentiment of the period blamed them as much as American policy for the atrocities that occurred, and virtually all were smeared with the baby-killer label until films such as Apocalypse Now, Born on the Fourth of July, and The Deer Hunter cast a light on their collective experience. In Canada, Vietnam veterans were largely ignored until they started to make noise. What rejection and hostility they did encounter was more institutionalized and, as it turned out, more lasting than that of their American counterparts. We came back and there was nothing here, said Purvis. Canada wasn't involved in a war. There was no anti-war stuff here. You didn't exist as far as being a veteran was concerned. He saw his old friends, Butch and Billy Buffy, but things weren't the same. Everything had changed, he said. There was nobody to talk to. I never talked to another Vietnam vet for 16 years. It was the same for Parks, who returned from 38-degree temperatures and 100% humidity to the deep freeze of Winnipeg in November 1966. He became an iron worker. I just put my service away, he said, and didn't talk about it for 20 years. Many of the Vietnam veterans who returned to Canada tended to live with their experiences in obscurity, said Carroll. There were relatively few Canadians who could understand what they had experienced, and most would not have even understood why they went to fight in Vietnam in the first place, especially as the war went on and things went from bad to worse after 1968. They began to emerge from the woodwork when Purvis and others formed the CVVA after a reunion in Washington, D.C. in 1986. The group became affiliated with the ex-service organization Army, Navy, and Air Force Veterans in Canada in 1988 and marched on Remembrance Day for the first time. Purvis and Parks lobbied the U.S. government for medical benefits for Canadian Vietnam veterans. In April 1987, with help from the American Legion and others, they got a Bill S-894 through Congress and signed by the President effectively providing medical benefits to non-citizens who served in U.S. forces. Throughout our history, citizens of other countries have joined us in the defense of liberty, said Senator Frank Murkowski, who tabled the bill. He credited Canadian veterans of Vietnam for bringing the issue to his attention. All who serve, he said, irrespective of citizenship, should have access to medical care for the disabilities incurred while fulfilling that oath of duty, whether they live in the United States or a foreign country. Once a service-related claim is established with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, Canadian Vietnam veterans may receive care at facilities administered by Veterans Affairs Canada. Canadians who fought in Vietnam still struggle for even the most modest recognition and acknowledgments at home including the right to be buried alongside other veterans in cemeteries from Nova Scotia to British Columbia. Only Quebec and Ontario explicitly permit them veterans' license plates. Manitoba approved Park's application for one, then recalled it a year later. He had to return it. When a U.S. Vietnam veteran in Oregon read about the humiliation, he sent Parks an old set of his own for the back window of his truck. The years of lobbying and helping Vietnam veterans navigate the system and gain benefits 
are drawing to a close, however. Once hundreds strong, with chapters across the country, membership in the Canadian Vietnam Veterans Association has dropped below 50 individuals at a couple of remaining chapters. Many have died, a disproportionate number from the effects of Agent Orange, the Canadian-tested defoliant used in Vietnam. It's been linked to numerous illnesses, including some leukemias, type 2 diabetes, Hodgkin's lymphoma, Parkinson's disease, prostate cancer, and respiratory cancers. It's still killing them, said Purvis. Purvis returned to Vietnam with his wife and son in 1994. The American embargo on travel to the now unified communist country was lifted while he was getting their visas in Bangkok. No Americans to speak of had been back at that time. I just woke up one morning and said I have to go, he said. We went two weeks later and backpacked from Saigon to Hanoi. We spent a month there. My tour guide was North Vietnamese Army. My driver was South Vietnamese Army. I was in the American Army. And we all sat down and had a beer together. It was pretty strange. The people were nice. It's a beautiful country. In many ways, the trip was a healing experience for Purvis. While he still battles demons from his war-fighting days, he returned home with a sense of peace he hadn't known for a long time. His school chum, Larry Collins, was buried in the Field of Honor at Winnipeg's Brookside Cemetery, alongside Canadian veterans of the World Wars, Korea, and Afghanistan. Except for the friends he lost, Purvis said he has no regrets. It's a decision I made, he said. Everybody makes decisions in life, and you have to live with them. There were a lot of positives, the camaraderie, the people I met. In two or three years, he said, I had more life experiences than most people get in a lifetime. You have been listening to Frontlines. I'm Stephen J. Thorne. For this and other stories, visit legionmagazine.com frontlines. For more military history, subscribe to Legion Magazine at legionmagazine.com.